on earth as it is in heaven. I wonder how many times we've prayed those words. If you've been with the Lord for a long time, maybe hundreds or thousands of times you've said that thing. But I wonder how many of us wonder at it. I wonder how many of us think in the presence of God about what those words mean, what it means to say, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Jesus taught us to pray this prayer, the Lord's Prayer, because of two great truths that he wants us to participate in. So, in the package of on earth as it is in heaven, there's two really important truths. One is that one day Jesus will bring heaven down to earth fully. And he wants us to pray that reality into existence. Pray it down. Hasten the Lord's day. That's one great truth. The second great truth is one that I think is more neglected in the church today. And that is, he wants us to see that in some way, God sends heaven down to earth here and now through you, as you live and love like Jesus. When you obey Christ, then his will is being done on earth as it is in heaven. And we get a taste. We get a taste of heaven. I don't think we, we talk about that very often. I don't think we think about it as the church in the modern day very often because we've done something kind of strange. We've turned heaven upside down. Now, think of it like this. The ancient people, they all wanted heaven to come down. Everyone thought about heaven coming down. Read Genesis. Since chapter 3, when we sinned and were kicked out of the Garden of Eden, everything's trying to get back to Eden. We're trying to get back to this paradise where God and man were together, heaven on earth. Or think about the story of the, you know, Cain building a city. He's trying to build a sort of pseudo-heaven to meet all of his needs and live the good life as a refuge. Or think about Genesis 11, the Tower of Babel. They build this ziggurat to the sky to bring God down, to bring heaven down into their existence. It's why the ancients worshipped on high places, right? They're on mountains and under tall trees because these are the places where the earth reaches up towards the heavens and it seems nearer. The ancients always wanted to bring heaven down. But we just try to go to heaven. Heaven for us is just the place that we think we go when we die. See, Christianity has been pawned off as a get-out-of-jail-free card, right? We talked about this a few weeks ago. You get your card stamped, and then you know that you go to the good place instead of the bad place after you're in this place. What if it's so much more? What if heaven isn't just the place that you go when you die, but what if heaven comes to you? Two weeks ago, we re-began our Genesis series, so we're in chapter 28 this morning. Two weeks ago, we talked about the father's love, how Jacob and Esau were competing for their affection of their father. Then last week, we looked at the father's blessing, how Jacob stole the blessing that was due to his older brother. And today, we're going to talk about the Father's presence. Because at the heart of this text is two related ideas. First, that heaven comes down to earth. That's in this text. And two, that God will be with 
Jacob. And I said those are united ideas because when heaven comes down, God is here. That's God's realm. So let's think about the Father's presence today from this text. And the roadmap for this sermon is just two points. And both of these points, these these main sermon headings, are things that Jacob missed. Things that were darkened to Jacob's understanding. But because of Christ, we get to see them more clearly. Here's what they are. One, the undeserved grace of God. And two, the abiding presence of God. That's what we're going to talk about. So with that in mind, now let's read Genesis 28. It'll be on your screen. If you've got your Bible, feel free to open and follow along there. Genesis 28, I'm going to be reading from verses 10 through 22. Starting in verse 10, Jacob left Beersheba and went toward Haran. And he came to a certain place and stayed there that night because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones of the place, he put it under his head and lay down in that place to sleep. And he dreamed. And behold, there was a ladder set up on the earth, and the top of it reached to heaven. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie I will give to you and to your offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go. And I will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. And he was afraid and said, How awesome is this place! This is none other than the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. So early in the morning Jacob took the stone that he had put under his head, and he set it up for a pillar and poured oil on top of it. He called the name of that place Bethel, but the name of the city was Luz at first. Then Jacob made a vow, saying, If God will be with me and will keep me in this way that I go, and will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear so that I come again to my father's house in peace, then the Lord shall be my God. And this stone which I have set up for a pillar shall be God's house. And of all that you give me, I will give a full tenth to you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Now, the two things Jacob missed. Point number one the undeserved grace of God. Let's think about the story of Jacob so far and how he got to where he is now. So he began by um, even, he was fighting even in the womb for superiority. He was a heel grabber, grabbed the heel of his twin brother. Esau comes out first and he's supposed to get the inheritance and the blessing, but Jacob manipulates his brother to get the birthright. Then Jacob dresses up as his brother and deceives the father to get the blessing. He's not doing well. So his mom comes to him and says, guess what? Your brother's going to kill you, right? So he's on the run. That's where Jacob is now. He's burnt every single bridge behind him, and he's going to look for a wife 
in a far-off country called Haran. Verse 11 says he came to, quote, a certain place. Just a place. And it did have a name we found out later is called Luz. Uh, So why does it just say a place? Well, because the, the text is emphasizing that he's in the middle of nowhere. Jacob's in a a nowhere place, a no man's land. There's nothing significant about this place. There's nothing notable. There's no big milestones or, you know, landmarks to point out. It's just a place. Jacob came to a, a no man's land. And then he uses a stone for a pillow. How many of you have ever used a stone for a pillow? William. <laughs> Why didn't I see that coming, Evie? <laughs> Here's why you haven't used a stone for a pillow is because you're not really, really poor. Tim Keller made this point in a sermon on this text, and I think it was really helpful. He said if he had anything else with him, anything else to his name, a knapsack, an extra cloak, whatever, wouldn't he have used that? You know, bunching up a jacket, use that as a pillow? He was penniless. So he's in no man's land. He's burned every bridge behind him. He's lived a life of deceit. He's got nothing to his name. He's built up so many deceptions and lies that now he has to figure out how to live with them. You ever build up so many lies that now you're stuck in it and you can't get out? Welcome to Jacob's life. Jacob is a scoundrel. He's a deceiver. And life isn't going well for him. So what does he have to offer God? Nothing, right? Did he deserve the Father's blessing? No. Does he deserve God to show up, give him an incredible experience of his grace, and for God to put his blessing on him? Does he deserve that? No. Not at all. But God shows up anyway. God blesses him anyway. Not because of Jacob but in spite of Jacob. It's no different for me, and it's no different for you. God's blessing always, 100% of the time, comes by unmerited grace, a gift you do not deserve. Always. But those kinds of gifts can be the absolute hardest to receive, can't they? We, call, we have a word for them. We call them handouts. Nobody likes getting a handout. Even the word, like we look down on a totally undeserved free gift. And Jacob struggled to receive that gift as well. And, uh, you know, last week I made the claim that Jacob's a legalist. He's legalistic. I stand by it. (laughs) He slips right back into his old legalistic ways. Look again at verses 14 and 15. This is, um, if, if you're a Bible nerd, You might know the term a chiasm. It's a literary design that helps focus to the point of the text. This is a a chiastic text, and the center of the text is verses 14 and 15. This is the heart of this passage, and it's God's rich promise to Jacob. Let me read it again. He says, your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth. That's the Abrahamic promise. And you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. That's the Adamic blessing to fill the earth, right? And in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. That's the covenant with Abraham. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land. Now, that's an incredible promise from God. That's at the scale of 
Eden. That's what this promise is gesturing toward. But how does Jacob respond? You read it in verse 20 through 22. Then Jacob made a vow. Here's what he said. If God will be with me, and if God will keep me in this way that I go, and if God will give me bread to eat, and if God will give me clothes to wear so that I come again to my father's house in peace, then, then the Lord shall be my God. And this stone which I have set up for a pillar shall be God's house. And of all that you give me, I will give a full tenth to you. You're welcome, God. Did you hear the if-thens? The conditionality of Jacob's response. I'm telling you, he's a legalist. He thinks he's got to earn, deserve, and keep God's blessing in his own strength. God says, I'm making a promise to you you don't deserve. And Jacob says, fine, if you bless me, I'll pay you back. He's completely missed it. Don't make the same mistake as Jacob. Don't do it. When you encounter the blessings of God in Jesus, don't think that you can earn it, deserve it, or hang on to it in your own strength. It'll, it'll just grind you down to nothing. It will wear you out. That's not why God gives his good gifts. He doesn't do them to crush you. God, don't miss the grace. Don't miss the beauty of this, that God blesses us in Christ, not because of us, but in spite of us. Yeah, that's what makes his gift so wonderful, right? Because a gift that's earned and deserved is a salary. And a gift that's paid back is a loan. But salvation, the gift of blessing in Christ, is the free gift of salvation in Christ Jesus our Lord. Free. <laughs> free. Not alone. Not a wage. Heaven will come into your life through Jesus Christ. God will come into your life through Jesus, but only by gift. There is no other way. If I can put it this way, the only way to deserve God's blessing is to be undeserving. It's to receive it, not to take it. So maybe you're like Jacob today. Maybe you resonate with Jacob's story. You're a, you know, a second born. You're in the middle of nowhere, a no man's land, not a penny or pillow to your name. You've burnt the bridges behind you. Can we just marvel for a moment that God showed up and gave grace to him? And do we ever marvel that he does that for us too? God, God has given us this example of Jacob as kind of a negative example, right? Like this isn't a story that you read to figure out how to live like Jacob. That's not what this is about. He stands as a negative, don't be like Jacob, okay? But even in that, there's incredible hope here that God is exclusively offering his grace to people like us who don't deserve it. Exclusively. He says it a thousand, look, if you read the Bible with that in mind, you'll never unsee it. Every book, every passage you read, 
Isaiah 40, when the grace and the glory of God appear, the mountains will be laid low and the low places will be raised up, right? Or 1 Peter 5, I think it's 1 Peter 5, that God gives grace to the humble but opposes the proud. Don't you see, if you're a high mountain lifting yourself up, trying to get to heaven and deserve it, that's disqualifying. Having nothing is what qualifies you. That's what the first thing Jacob missed is the undeserved grace of God. Boy, did he miss it. Number two, the second thing he missed is the abiding presence of God. The word abide means to live or to remain, to dwell. Uh, The abiding presence of God. Now, since Genesis chapter three, that's when the fall happened. When we say the fall, what we mean is everything was beautiful and good and man and God lived together in, in harmony until the serpent came and deceived Eve and Adam stood by passively and did nothing. And we sinned. And then we were kicked out. That's what I mean by the fall. And that's what I'm talking about when I point to Genesis 3. And since Genesis 3, the main plot conflict of this story has been what God has promised to send an offspring of the woman through whom the world will be saved, right? That's Genesis 3.15. The, the, the plot conflict is which offspring, right? Which family line will God choose to, to bring the Savior through? Is it going to be Cain or Abel or Seth? Is it going to be uh, Shem, Ham, or Japheth? Is it going to be Ishmael or Isaac? Is it going to be Esau or Jacob? And the promises, the, the, these promises, the blessing of, of choosing this line are most clearly and profoundly given to Abraham, beginning in chapter 12. God makes a covenant with him that, will, that it's going to be his family line that will increase like the dust of the earth and the stars of heaven and through whom all the families of earth will be blessed, right? That's the Abrahamic covenant, the Abrahamic promises. And now that promise that was given to Abraham is passed down through Jacob. God chose him. God chose his family to be the conduit of his blessing and salvation to the world. So even though he didn't deserve it. So that's, that's what Jacob's getting uh, it's receiving this ancestral promise from God, but he gets something new. I wonder if you caught it. There's something wonderful and novel in this promise to Jacob. Uh, it's an assurance that none of his ancestors, none of his forefathers were given. It's in verse 15. God says, behold, I am with you and will keep you. That means to guard wherever you go. No matter where you go, no matter what you do, you can't shake him. I will be with you. I will keep you. I will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. The way they use the word until, just in case that's confusing, doesn't mean that when God's promises are fulfilled, he's going to leave. It means up to and even beyond. Now, like I said earlier, Jacob missed that abiding presence of God, that new promise. He missed it completely. So remember, uh, in verse 12, it says Jacob came to just a place, 
certain place, like a random place, a nameless place, a nowhere place. And he goes to sleep and he has this dream where heaven is connected to earth and God is there. And God says in the dream, I'll be with you. And Jacob wakes up and goes, wow, this space must be amazing. What a special place I'm in. So the narrator says it's a nowhere place. It doesn't matter. Jacob says this is a magic place. I've got to build a temple here. He names it Bethel, which means house of God in Hebrew, Beit El. And that's temple language. And he sets up a stone and basically says, I'm going to build a temple out of this one day. Jacob thinks since God lives here, this is the house of God, this Bethel. Now, in case you think I'm, I'm misreading the text, go ahead and read, you know, look up in a concordance, the word Bethel, and read everything connected to the history of Bethel throughout the rest of the Old Testament. It doesn't go well. People keep making the same mistake and thinking there's some special thing about this place. We do that all the time, just not with places. There's something special about this pastor or this spiritual discipline, and we try to recreate our good experiences with God on our own terms. That's also legalistic. That's us missing God's grace. So Jacob says there's something special about this place. The same thing happens later. When the, in 1 Kings uh, 11 and beyond, this is after, this is a, a thousand years later, after King David, right? King David's son Solomon is king. Solomon's son Rehoboam is king. And it's in Rehoboam's time that the kingdom of Israel splits in two. And now there's the northern kingdom, which we call Israel, and the southern kingdom, which we call Judah. Now, God's temple is in Judah, in Jerusalem. So what are these 10 tribes in the north going to do for worship if they can't go to the temple? Well, guess what? They go back to this special magic place called Bethel. And you know what they do there? They put up a golden calf, as if they hadn't tried that before. There's nothing special about Bethel. The promise is, God doesn't say, I will be in this place, so you better stay close to this place. He says, I will be with you wherever you go. Jacob missed it. Heaven and earth don't overlap in some secret place or some secret practice or some mystical experience. They overlap in a person. Now, before we go any further, we've got to talk a little bit about temples. The idea of a temple uh, it would have been very familiar to ancient readers and very foreign to most of us Americans. So in Genesis 1, we're introduced to two realms, God's realm and man's realm, right? They're called heaven and earth, and they're represented by the sky and the land, right? They, so Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God created what? The heavens and the earth. It both means literally that he created the sky and the land, but it also means both of these realms came into existence by God, God's good decree and command. God created heaven and all the creatures that fill it, that we don't know anything about hardly. And God created this realm, earth, man's realm, and all the creatures that fill it. And it was always God's plan for these two realms, heaven and earth, to unite the marriage of heaven and earth, if I can say it that way. He always wanted them to be one and be brought together, uh, but that didn't work out. 
because sin and death entered the world, like we talked about, the fall, Genesis 3, and sin cannot stand in the presence of a holy God. So the realms, heaven and earth, can't overlap when there's sin. And uh, so we see the Garden of Eden in Genesis 2. It's described with temple language because temples are places where heaven and earth do overlap. So Adam and Eve are described like priests in a temple on this garden mountain. It's what theologians call sacred space, the overlap of heaven and earth. But when they sin, they're driven out of this temple garden because, again, sin cannot stand in the presence of God. That's why if we keep reading a couple books later in the Bible, say in Leviticus, you'll see a tabernacle and, a, and then a temple eventually built. And in the tabernacle and in the temple, these are, these are sacred space where God says, I'm going to allow heaven and earth to overlap here. But what is always associated with the tabernacle and the temple? Sacrifice. Your sin has to be dealt with if you're going to come into the presence of God. A temple always means a sacrifice because sin can't stand in his presence. So animals were sacrificed to represent the fact that real sin incurs real punishment because God is just and holy. Something or someone has to take your sin's punishment if you are to go into a temple and come into the presence of God. So heaven does come down. Heaven and earth do overlap. And the temple is the place that we see that happen in the Old Testament. And that's why when Jacob sees the presence of God and the overlap of heaven and earth, the staircase uniting heaven and earth, he says, I'm going to call this place the house of God, the temple. And I'm going to build a temple here. All right. Now, with that in mind, I want to do a little tour de force of John's gospel. Because John is thinking about the Jacob story as he's writing uh, that, that book in the New Testament. So we're going to do a little bit of page flipping. Uh, so if you've got your Bible with you, go ahead and turn to John chapter 1. Uh, we're going to be in John 1 verse 51, but let me just set the scene for you. Jesus is calling his disciples. Um, Jacob will go on to have 12 sons. Jesus, as the true and better Jacob, goes on and chooses 12 disciples. And one of these future disciples is a man named Nathaniel. So uh, Nathaniel's um, kind of fetched by Philip, and, and Philip brings Nathaniel in, and Jesus says, Look, an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. An Israelite. Now, Jacob's name was changed to Israel, and Jacob was the deceiver. Jesus is intentionally bringing to mind for us the story of Jacob. He says, Nathaniel, an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. And he says, you know, when you were sitting under that fig tree, I saw you. And that blows Nathaniel away. He's like, whoa, you are the son of God. Amazing. And Jesus, it sounds like he kind of chuckles. He goes, that's all it took? You're going to see greater things than these. Here's what he says in verse 51. Jesus said to him, truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on what? The Son of Man. Jesus didn't say that heaven comes down in a special place or on a special ladder. He says, I'm the ladder. Heaven comes down in me. 
I'm the overlap between heaven and earth. Heaven and earth unite in Christ. Now flip to John chapter 2. Next page over probably. Uh, At this point, Jesus, having called his disciples, comes into the house of God, the temple of God, and he, he talks about his father's house and He finds there that things haven't gone so well and that the sort of religious authorities are taking advantage of the poorer people who are coming to make sacrifices and can't afford the things. Uh, And so Jesus changes, uh, drives away the money changers. And uh, and this is what follows that, uh, him, you know, driving them out. This is John 2, starting in 18, reading through 21. So he's driven them out. And the Jews said to him, What sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, It's taken 46 years to build this temple, and you're going to raise it up in three days? But, John says, dear reader, he was speaking about the temple of his body. You see, first, Jesus tells Nathanael, heaven and earth unite in me. I'm the latter. And now he says to the Jews, though they don't understand it, I am the temple. The overlap, the sacred space between heaven and earth. Heaven comes down in Jesus. Now flip a couple pages over. John chapter 4. One of my favorite stories. Jesus meets a woman at a well. Now, the woman is a Samaritan, and Samaritans and Jews have, uh, you know, had been arguing for centuries about worship. They parted ways religiously a very long time before Jesus is standing here in the first century. And one of the main things they disagreed on was where God should be worshipped. Jerusalem or the holy mountain that the Samaritans worshipped on. So uh, when Jesus starts kind of opening the woman's heart to her and she perceives that he's something different than all the other men she's encountered, she basically says, Look, oh, okay, you're a prophet. I, I see God has put his kind of stamp of authority on you. So I've got a question for you. Since God seems to be with you, tell me, on which mountain are we supposed to worship God? Which special place? The Jew's special place or the Samaritan special place? Jesus says, verse 23, God will be worshipped in spirit and in truth. Not a special place. In other words, wherever God's spirit is filling God's people, that's where he's worshipped. Wherever we are in Christ, that's sacred space. It's about Jesus. That sacred space, the overlap the Holy Temple, the Garden of Eden, Paradise, it's all in Christ. See, heaven can come down into your life right now. It can, but only through Jesus. There's nothing you can build to invite heaven down. There's nothing you can do to deserve his blessing. There's nothing you can do to keep and maintain his presence. It all comes through grace, in the person of Jesus. That's how this works. But we said at the beginning that sin cannot stand in the presence of God. I sin a lot. So what hope do I have? What hope do you have if you're anything like me? I think you are. 
what hope do we have? If we are going to enter the overlap between heaven and earth, we're going to need a sacrifice. Someone has got to pay for our sins. Who's it going to be? It's either going to be you or Jesus. Those are the only options, guys. Animal blood and sacrifices didn't pay for anything. They pointed to something. And God says in Romans that he overlooked their sin for a lot of years until Christ came. And now the season of sacrifice is over. There are no more lambs being slaughtered at the temple. There's no more temple. Now we need Jesus. The reality has come. Jesus is not only your temple, he's your sacrificial lamb. And, you know, John John chapter 1 calls him the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Not who points the finger at your sins, but who takes away the sins of the world. And if you trust Jesus to do that for you, then he will be your temple and he will be your sacrifice and he will send heaven into your life. I'm not guessing. He will. He won't send you prosperity. He won't send you ease. Not yet. One day. But until Jesus comes back, we're going to taste heaven in the midst of sorrow and suffering. Do you know it's sweeter that way? But just like he said to Jacob, he said, I will be with you wherever you go. He says that to you too. Even if you've burnt all your bridges. If you're stuck in a life of lies and manipulation. If you're in a no man's land. If you don't have a penny to your name, you'll have God. What could be better? The Father's love the Father's blessing, and the Father's presence. Here's how the Father's presence comes into your life. One more verse from John's Gospel. I'm not sure if this is a Genesis series or a John series. Here's how the Father's uh, presence comes into your life. It's John 14, verse 18. Again, let me give a little context. Jesus has just explained two key things to his disciples. Number one, I'm going away. And he's speaking about his death, resurrection, and ascension. He says, I'm not going to physically be with you anymore. That's one key thing. The second key thing that Jesus just explained to his disciples is that they experience and know God the Father through the Son. So if you're doing the math, they experience the Father through the Son, but the Son is leaving, then it's the Father being taken from them too. Do you understand? The disciples are, are worried about that. They want the presence of the Father. How is that going to happen? So the natural question is, if you go, doesn't the Father go too? And here's what Jesus says, John 14, 18. He says, I will not leave you as orphans. And he goes on to explain that he's going to send the Holy Spirit down. We're not orphans left from the Father because Jesus went to heaven, sent his spirit to live in us. Here's how this works. The spirit shows us Christ. Christ shows us the Father. Not shows like puts a picture on the wall. Jesus says, I will manifest myself to you. Manifest. It's like an incarnation. It's that profound. 
The Father is in your life. The Father is with you if Jesus is with you and has filled you with his spirit, which all comes through just trusting him to be your sacrifice. In other words, you're a temple, right? Jesus is the temple. But then in 1 Corinthians, for instance, Paul says a bunch of times, don't you know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit? In Christ, we're all temples. Peter says we're being built up like living stones into a house of God. So if you trust Jesus to pay for the sins that you can't pay, he'll bring heaven down and you get to be sacred space. Do you understand that you are holy? That means everywhere you go, you bring God. Every breath is holy. Every moment is sacred. There is nothing mundane or ordinary about your life in Christ. God is with you. (laughs) Heaven and earth overlap in you, God's people. Think about the fruit of the Spirit, Galatians 5. What lo- uh, Love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, kindness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. I think I got them all. The fruit of the Spirit is like, it's like fruit from the tree of life in heaven that God grows in your life now on earth. The fruit of the Spirit is heavenly fruit that you get to manifest on your branches, as it were, here in this dark world. So every time you taste those fruit, let's say you have patience beyond yourself in a time of suffering and trying. Or let's say you show self-control by God's grace, where before you have succumbed to temptation. You are tasting heaven. And when other people see you growing in Christ, they taste heaven too. Jacob's on a remarkable journey with God. Uh, There's so much I couldn't get to today. There's so much we're going to talk about in the the coming weeks. But if you trust in Jesus, you're on a journey with God as well. And I do mean with God. And there will be ups and downs, friends. There will be seasons where you hit a wall and say, I've got nothing else left. Jen gave me a great picture of this earlier today. You mind if I share that? I'm putting you on the spot. I'm so sorry. She said, she pictures her and Jesus sitting across from a table. And I hope I get this right. All of the bills and to-dos and worries stack up like papers on the table until they get so high that she has to just push them over and say, I need you to do this. You will hit points in your life like that where you don't even know how you can take another breath. And I'm telling you, not based on how good you feel in the moment, I'm telling you based on the word of God, God is with you, even in that. And heaven is sweeter when it comes through our suffering. I'm going to leave you with the words of Matthew 28. Um, You know them, it's the Great Commission. Jesus says, all authority in heaven and on earth 
has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. He's with us. Let's pray and prepare for the Lord's table. Uh, Lord Jesus, I um, take comfort at your presence, even even though um, this very week I have hit my own wall and I have run it to the end of my own strength and I didn't feel your presence, but I know because you said so, that you are with me always to the end of the age. We do want tastes of your presence but we also ask you to give us the strength to keep going even when the clouds cover the sun. When darkness veils thy lovely face, we rest on thy unchanging grace. Thank you for that. Amen.